This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We've been talking a lot about climate change in the news on this show in the last couple of days. We've been talking about climate a lot on this show in the last couple of weeks. Last week, we spoke to one of the researchers behind a report by McGill University's Disability Inclusive Climate Action Research Program. The report pointed out how people with disabilities have largely been left out of climate change policy. So let's bring in Lawrence Gunther for his thoughts on this. Lawrence is, of course, of course, the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. Hey, good morning, Lawrence. How are you? I'm doing well, Dave. So, Lawrence, let's start with a general question. What was your immediate takeaway, your immediate take on this report? Well, I was disappointed, you know, in the findings, but not surprised, right? I mean, people with disabilities are seem to be the last to be considered on, on big topics like this these days. And when you're talking about, you know, power outages, uh, floods, emergency evacuations, food shortages, homelessness, you know, destruction of uh, shelters and, and housing... These are huge issues for people with disabilities because the options just aren't that great in terms of economic power and uh, accessibility. So when you lose that little bit, what you got for many of us, it's, it's a huge setback. It's vulnerable people who will typically be most impacted in time of a crisis. In fact, the people that we've seen suffering so greatly with fatalities as a result of Hurricane Fiona were elderly people who were swept into the ocean, right? I mean, that, if that doesn't put things into perspective for people, I don't think anything can. I agree, but I think what this report sort of says is is it definitely highlights that. But take it to the next level, you know, about the consultation process, right? You know, how do we get people with disabilities represented in these policies? We talk to them. It's not about us or for us. It's involve us. And that's, I think, where the real issue comes down is we're just not being consulted in real meaningful ways. So along those lines of some of the findings in this report, what stood out to you in regards to some of the biggest failures? Well, I think about that, um, that you know, the example of the Montreal heat wave in 2018 and that one quarter of the people that died during that heat wave were people who uh, experienced uh, schizophrenia. And they said, you know, it's due to uh, the medication people with schizophrenia takes makes them more vulnerable to heat. Well, there's a lot more going on than just that, right? I mean, there's a lot of homeless people who have schizophrenia. And they have. They're homeless, so they're outside under the... uh, under the sun, experiencing the heat every day, all day long, and in the night as well with very little sort of, you know, relief. So, you know, they're, they're forgotten. They're, they're, again, like drug addicts and homeless people, we don't consider them and we don't sort of involve them. We don't sort of create policies that include them around health care or emergency response when it comes to, uh, you know, crisis related to climate change. We're just not 
thinking about them or we just don't care enough about them. And, and that, to me, needed to be underscored a little bit more. Yeah, and I'll, I'll flip to the other coast. There was also some findings about the heat dome in British Columbia, the way in which that impacted people who were more vulnerable. And in this case, it was people who were actually in their homes who were being affected by this. The majority of the people who passed away as a result of the heat dome were people who actually had shelter in British Columbia. But again, they were people who were more vulnerable to the heat because of their age. And I don't mean to automatically imply that aging comes with disability, but let's be clear, it does. Mm. Oh, like, for sure. I mean, 60%, you know, if you're over 65, you're, you know, you're right away, you're 40% person with a disability. If you're over 75, it goes up to 60% back and knee issues and, you know, income, right? How much money do you have? So what kind of quality of apartment you're going to have? You're mm-hmm. going to have one with air conditioning or one with one tiny little window in the attic of some old house that has no cross ventilation and poor insulation. And you're just, it's like being in an oven. Yeah, exactly. It speaks, it speaks to a, a general sort of structural lack of resilience that we've built in to the way in which we have people living as these conditions are changing. Lawrence, in your observations, are there some other groups impacted by extreme weather and climate change? For sure, Dave. Like, I think about this conference I just attended uh, last week, and um, a two-day conference, and it was about farm animals, and uh, we had a lot of presentations about what happens to farm animals during extreme events like floods and fire and storms that rip the roof off barns and destroy barns. You know, we hear about this in the news and we think, oh my goodness, you know, thousands and thousands of animals, uh, birds and chickens and geese and cattle and horses, you know, these are impacted. And, and But think about this too, the people that are responsible for those animals, the farmers, the owners of those farms, the people who work on those farms, when you see everything you work with, you know, they, you're caring for these animals, you're, you're responsible for these animals, and then all of a sudden, it's all just eliminated, just wiped out. The depression that results from that is pretty profound. And they've done a lot of surveys now of farmers. And they say that this type of event, these type of emergency events where their farm animals are impacted significantly, quite often it leads to depression. And unfortunately, it also leads to suicide. Yeah. These are the people that are, you know, responsible for our food, for growing our food, for taking care of, our, you know, our farm animals. And and uh, we're not we're not taking them into consideration as, as much as we should either. We, you know, Agriculture Canada has a few programs, they're funding a few programs, but there's a lot more, a lot more conversations that need to happen about mental illness amongst farm workers and the stress and, and anxiety they're experiencing around this stuff. Yeah, that was something we didn't necessarily see in the DICARP report because it happened so recently, but that was certainly an issue that happened in the flooding in the lower mainland in British Columbia last fall, oh, wow. last, last autumn, where a yeah. lot of farms were wiped out. And of course, there's a trauma there. But as you say, you use the word anxiousness, anxiety. I think there's just generally a climate anxiety that exists for people, regardless of disability. But is there something we can do sort of beyond a consultation for people with disabilities that that, that would help with potentially some of these anxieties and mental welfares and preparations? Well, I think, you know, about environmental groups that are being consulted around these sorts of questions, right, around emergencies and, and all the stakeholders that are consulted. In my own experience uh, as the president of uh, an organization that's, you know, an environmental group, Bluefish Canada, I, I go to work, uh, go to the meetings of environmental groups and I meet with all my colleagues. And Dave, I don't see a lot of people with disabilities in these organizations themselves, right? 
And I think that's that's an issue in itself. Like it, when you have environmental groups and other groups talking to government, policymakers, decision makers, regulators about what do we need to do to prepare and mitigate climate change and, and build in resilience and respond and prepare and all of all the things we need to do around emergencies. And you have no one uh, in those groups with people with disabilities represented in those groups. That's a huge issue. That's a huge issue. And and. And I'm not going to get into why that's the way it is. I mean, there's a bit of a history there for sure. And uh, I've, I've written about it a little bit and I've explored it and I've experienced it all my life as someone who's, you know, started in the environmental movement back in the early, late 1980s. And, um, but I think there's, there's some interesting movement on this though. There's a group of diverse environmental activists in the United States, three people, very diverse backgrounds, who also recognize this and have started a thing called the Outdoorist Oath. And it's about taking a pledge to make sure that when we consider things related to the environment and climate change, that we, we bring in alternative and varied perspectives and that we don't deny and we don't exclude these perspectives and taking that pledge to make sure that the people and the organizations we work with have that diversity and have that sort of representation that's sorely missing right now. Mm, I'm 100% on board with that, Lawrence. What are some of the other things we can do to address this shortfall, address this gap? What do you imagine we can do to create a circumstance where there is more inclusion and diversity baked into these movements? Money talks, Dave. Oh, Money <laughs> talks. <laughs> <laughs> and if you when you're if you're you're responsible for handing out government grants to these organizations or you're a you're organizing you know running a foundation where you know a lot of people with money with wealth they don't give their money directly to a, 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 an organization they put it in a foundation and they hire someone to run that foundation to make sure the money is going to where it should go and that it's being properly utilized these people should all make a conditional that you know the organizations that are getting this money have a representation that's not, you know that reflects society not just um, a, you know expertise in a topic not just you know a, a, a good meaningful um, a desire to make a difference but actually make a difference that includes everybody and not just uh, a specific subset of the population which is what we have now money talks yeah this this isn't a fringe movement anymore this is a major major issue that that has cross-popular appeal and you're right should absolutely contain a sample size of individuals that represent society as a collective lawrence just before i ask you what's coming up on the next episode of outdoors with lawrence gunther i know i'm kind of putting this on you a bit of a surprise and it's early still but one of the stories that is starting to emerge out of the atlantic canada right now is the number of fisheries and wharfs that are going to be dam that were damaged by the hurricane and storm that passed through I wonder if maybe you can offer a little bit of perspective on just what's, what is the impact of something like that for people and their livelihoods, both recreational fishermen, but also professional fishermen and fisheries with that kind of damage when a storm like that pushes through. You know, it's funny, I just got an email from a friend of mine. He He's a professor at Dalhousie University. He does a lot of fisheries research on rays and sharks. Uh, I've had him on Bluefish Radio a number of times. We're good friends. And he sent out a long email about you know, his own preparations for the, for the uh, hurricane that just passed through. He, he's in Halifax and, uh, and, and just the damage that occurs. And, you know, we, we focus a lot on the surface, right? On what's happening on land, you know, how the waves and the tides and, and the wind and the rain impact the buildings, the structure, all of that, the roads, the electricity, all of that. But then you look at the shoreline and, 
And how's the shoreline holding up to all this? We think we can harden the shoreline. He said, he's points out in his e email, like the last time they had a hurricane, they lost 80 feet of concrete sort of retaining wall, a, that, a, a sort of a dike that was meant to protect the harbor where all the fishing boats are, all their docks, all their fish shacks are on inside this harbor. And the government built a large cement sort of wave break out there to, you know, to prevent large waves from coming in and destroying all this. Well, the last hurricane, 80 feet of that concrete uh, barrier was just disappeared. These are how powerful these storms are, wow. Dave. We think we can put rocks and, and cement and stop it and prevent it and, and make ourselves secure. It, these these solutions last on average 25 to 50 years, and then they're just rubble. They're wow. just rubble. Wow. So there's a lot of research on softening shorelines, you know, putting the trees back, putting the native plants back, putting these buffer strips along the shores. You know, when you have a big, large wave rolling in, you can't stop it, but you can slow it down. And if you put enough sort of hardy trees and plants that are well-rooted and, you know, built for this type of uh, harassment by, by nature, they can slow these waves down. They can slow down the, the tides. They can slow down the viciousness of these, of these, uh, the seas incursions and, and make it a softer landing for the, uh, for the land behind it. But then what about the fish, right? I'm, I'm thinking about the fish. So I've asked him, I said, think Chris, think about this. Like what happens to the fish and what happens to their habitat? Let's talk about that as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, to paraphrase Jurassic Park, nature finds a way. Lawrence, well, what's coming up on the next episode of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther? Well, we, Lily and I went to visit the international plowing match. Now, who doesn't want to go to the plowing match, right? <laughs> Was, is that the Highland Games? No, no, it's the actual international plowing match. You know, all week I've been saying to my friends, hey, go to the plowing match. And they go, what's that, Lawrence? <laughs> Come on. It's once a year in Ontario. They pick a community to host it. It's all things farming, right? They have actual plowing competitions. And uh, so we went. I, I, I made my children go. I bribed them and, and threatened them. And, and <laughs> you used the carrot and the stick. Oh, all of it. They took everything, everything I had, you know, and they said, dad, you like this. And then we're, we're, we're getting ready to leave. And I said, hang on, I haven't even touched a tractor. <laughs> Turn around, go back in. It's the uh, simple pleasures in life. Yeah. So we, we do a recap on the plow and match and Lily has some, uh, some uh, tips on uh, recycling best practices. And then I reflect a little bit on, you know, how to stay safe when you're around farm animals or someone who's blind, uh, maybe with a guide dog. And, um, and what's the future of farming? Wow, that's a jam-packed episode of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. Holy smokes, getting it all in there. Lawrence, oh, thank, yeah. you, thank you for making time for us today. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Dave. Have a great one. That's Lawrence Gunther. He's the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, which you can find Sundays at 3 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. You can download the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform, and you can follow Lawrence on Twitter at Lawrence Gunther. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.